everyone to a special edition of How Does the Social Work? Over the last few weeks, we've heard our guest host, Dr. Naim Zanuzi, um, interview a number of special experts, and you've got some sense of where she's coming from. But in this episode, uh, I, Dan Vale, and two students from Brunel will be interviewing Mariam herself, exploring her background, her motivations, her work, uh, her passion for uh, changing social work. So, welcome, Dr. Mariam Zimbizi. Morning. Good morning. So, firstly, let me uh, let the students introduce themselves with a few words. Natalia. Um, hello, my name is Natalia Phillips. I am a second year social work student at Brunel University. Um, uh, previously, I worked as a teacher for 10 years and worked in a mental health charities. Thank you. Fantastic, and welcome to you. Joe, hi. Morning. Hi, I'm uh, Joe Burns. I, too, am just about to start my second year uh, on the social work master's at Brunel. Um, from, you know, a, a varied career previously with some experience in um, uh, special education. And Mariam, I suppose we could get you to introduce yourself. Um, it might take quite a long time because there are so many strings to your bow, but how would you describe yourself to the listeners who've not met you before? Uh, oh, interesting question. Um, hello, everybody. My name is Mariam, and I would describe myself as a disruptive person agitator within the social care and social work movement um, but I started out life uh, very much as a disability activist and then moved into a broader area of of interest so that's probably how I would describe myself as um as a, a very annoying person <clears throat> as Dan will attest <laughs> well, we've worked together for several years, and uh, I can't say annoying is the first adjective that I would use. Um, but let me get the students to um, quiz you a bit for the first bit about your your life and your experiences. So Natalia, I think, has got a, a question for you first up. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you, Dan. Uh, hello, Mariam. I've got a question for you about your experiences. Uh, do you think your experiences as a disabled person give you motivation to be a social worker? And what's what it's like to be a disabled social worker? I think being a disabled person gives me motivation to be an anti-social worker. Um, I'm really actually quite fascinated in the whole anti-psychiatry movement. And I think we need a similar movement within social work. Um, so I'm setting myself up as an anti-social worker. Um, so I'm setting out my stall today as, a, I don't know, there may be other anti-social workers, but, you know, we, we, we shall see. But in answer to your question, Natalian, um, no, the two things are not related for me. Um, my, my journey into social work was a, um, an interesting one um, in that, I, I would imagine a lot of people who come into social work want to be social workers. I didn't. I didn't want to be a social worker. I wanted to be an anti-social worker, which is what brought me into social work. Um, and perhaps being a disabled person and having experienced the various um, systems of social work um, is what brought me into it. I can't say that if I was a non-disabled person, I would have been particularly interested. I don't know what I would have been, maybe a dentist. Um, I used to stick lots of toothpicks in my sister's mouth and she was like, oh, you need to be a dentist. So maybe that's what I would have been. But yeah, so no, my, the, 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 the two things are not connected in my mind, interestingly. Perhaps you could say a few words about your first encounters with social services as a young person or, or child. Sure, I mean, I've, I've had social workers in my life as 
long as I can possibly remember, to be honest. I mean, the, the first social workers I remember were in the very early 80s, um, and they were children and families social workers. So there wasn't this divide between adults and children. We had one social worker for the family, mm-hmm. and this person worked with me on the various things that I needed, but also very much worked with my with my parents as well. Um, and I actually have quite, I have to say, I have reasonably fond memories of those social workers. I kind of see a split happening in, in my mind. There was kind of the, the social workers as I remember them, and then the functionaries as they have become now, as being two completely different kind of social workers. Um, and I, you know, you do come across the old type of social workers um, every now and again, um, but increasingly n- not so much so. Um, so yeah, I'd probably say I've had social workers in my life since I was about, what, five? Um, so yeah, and actually I met one of the social workers at a conference that I'd done, um, who was one of my first social workers when I was five, when I was giving a presentation on, on personalization when we'd launched a book. And she came up to me and she was like, do you remember me? And I was like, oh, you look really familiar. She was like, I was your social worker when you were five. And I was like, oh my life. And it was, it was just amazing. But she was a, a completely different breed of social worker. Uh, really fascinating. Um, yeah, so. Now, Mariam, you've, you've done a lot of work on personalization, which you just mentioned. And in fact, your PhD, which was a, a monstrous tome available, I think, still on the internet, was on the impacts of the personalization agenda on disabled people, and especially on um, concepts of empowerment. Um, without having to go through 100,000 words, could you just briefly say, firstly, how that came about, and secondly, what, what, what you were sort of finding out and, and discussing? Okay, so this kind of came about because I had spent many of my kind of teenage and early adulthood having to wait around for care workers to come in so that I could get out of bed and and get the things done that I needed needed to do to get on with my day. And in those days, I know I don't look that old, um, but in in those days, you literally had to wait your your turn. So if they decided that on the rotor that week, you were at two o'clock in the afternoon, you were in bed until two o'clock in the afternoon when somebody came to get you. And so I just remember just endless amounts of waiting. So it kind of disrupted education. I had to do GCSEs over kind of like three years rather than two fell behind with a bunch of things. And I just remember kind of having this real anger towards this kind of nebulous force in my life, which was the council. And I didn't really know who the council was. All I knew it was they were stopping me from trying to achieve the things I wanted to achieve. And um, it then kind of became evident that the, the, the people who were rationing the services were were social workers and I didn't and I hadn't kind of put those two things together actually I just thought it was you know the council and cutting a very long story short I kind of got to know about the work of Mike Oliver, uh, Vic Finkelstein, um, Colin Barnes, uh, all of those uh, you know uh, Tom Shakespeare all of those disability activists as a result of my own frustrations, you know, uh, books were given to me and I read uh, those books and and the social model of disability really, really resonated with me, as did the fight to try and get resources that we could spend um, on our own care packages. So I remember sort of being 
kind of mentally involved with that since I was about 17, 18. I didn't actually make any strides to connect with that movement until I went to university to actually be with Mike Oliver. Uh, because I actually think what's important about university isn't the university brand and where you go, but actually the, the, the people whose minds you want to be around. And I really wanted to be around Mike. And um, he's sorely missed. He's, um, he was a proper in-the-trenches working-class disabled person. And we couldn't have been further apart, really, in, in, in that sense. I wasn't particularly working-class, but I identified with the struggle. And um, I remember how saying that the disability theorists at that time were they were like freedom fighters in a way, weren't they? Sort of fighting yeah. for the emancipation of disabled people, many of whom had been institutionalized and the barriers to employment and education were, were huge and systemic. Yeah, massively so, massively so. But I remember having this really curious existential discussion with Mike in, in, in his room. Uh, at, at Greenwich University it kind of went something like this I mean you know I probably won't really do it justice but I mean it was Mike was really passionate about inclusivity and disabled people having access to things to services to the, you know to whether it be public services private services whatever they are I, I remember leaning in and saying to Mike, I didn't really understand the fight for inclusivity. And he 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 looked at me like, you bloody traitor, because he was a proper Marxist as well. So you know, you're a you're a basically you're a you you're a class you're a class traitor. And I was just kind of like, no, you know, I I I actually have genuine concerns about this kind of inclusivity racket, as I called it at him. Um, he wasn't terribly impressed with me, but he kind of said, oh, you know, explain yourself. And I sort of said, well, you're, you know, you, you profess to be, you know, uh, died in the wall Marxist, etc." And he was like, well, yeah, you know, I don't make any real secret about that. And I said, but why would I fight to, to become included in a neoliberal system? don't really understand why I would fight for that. What, what, what's so great about that? And I said, and, and in any case, all of the campaigns around trying to make things accessible seem to be kind of uh, coalescing around disabled people being able to get into Primark, not interested in getting into Primark. So I said, I don't really understand why we would want to inculcate disabled people into capitalism. Shouldn't we actually be not? But 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 it was just such a kind of strange uh, conversation. We didn't really, I don't think, get to the end of it. And in all honesty, kind of going, bringing it back full circle to what kind of got me into the PhD was that the was that actually my life had become fighting for inclusion and by the end of the PhD it was like but actually I don't want to fight to fit in anymore I want to fight to fit out so yeah I don't know whether that's a well it, yes I mean there was a big sort of move towards personalization wasn't there as part of this sort of emancipation movement the theory being that if you give the choice and the power to disabled people to make decisions on their own care and to be responsible for their own budgets, then that equated to a massive revolution in, in their being. Yeah. And what I mean, you yeah. guys found out was something slightly different. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that it's kind of interesting how redistributive politics around sort of like Marxism came together with a neoliberal agenda to responsibilize disabled people and completely subverted, I think, what people like Mark, Mike and, you know, 
maybe Jane Campbell and Frances Hasler and the people who were working for the Centre for Independent Living at the time actually really wanted. I'm not sure that this is where they would have known they were going to land. What's interesting is that still within the disability movement, there isn't enough critique of personalization. And I think that my PhD was probably actually a kind of a first in that direction. And, and so, yeah, we, we found actually that contrary to personalization being empowering and putting disabled people in control of their lives, that what it does is that it creates a management burden uh, for disabled people where they have to manage a huge kind of administrative load where they have to take on the responsibility of employing their own staff, of managing their own staff, of hiring and firing their own staff. So in a way, what kind of happened is you had Marxists wanting disabled people to have redistribution of wealth, so money moving from the state to the individual. But what you had within the state apparatus by that time is a neoliberal kind of social work which came together with kind of strange bedfellows actually they both came together and what ended up happening was that disabled people ended up being given the managerial responsibility that had previously sat with with councils and 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 with social workers and with care managers and so actually what, what ended up happening is we ended up indoctrinating disabled people into regimes of care that the state wanted. So there is very little that is actually empowering about it because the things that you can use the money on is very, very, very limited. I know that in control and organizations like that didn't want it to be so but that's how it's ended up and unfortunately it's um it's become something now that i think has become very easy to divide and rule disabled people around because once you individualize packages of care like that it's very easy for councils to then pick people off and kind of go right you you don't meet the criteria anymore whereas when it when it was you know, kind of like a mass, it was much, much more difficult to do things like that. So it's, it, it was, the PhD was a real revelation for me into how great intentions from really well-intentioned people who have a real political ambition to do something can go very badly wrong. And I should incidentally say that when disabled people were put in control, they became as bad as the social workers, they became absolute tyrants. So there's a massive lesson there as well about how power is really very, very insidious and um, needs to be challenged at every single level, which is how I kind of both fell in love with and fell out of love with the disability movement all within the space of five years. And I think it's worth saying that your your PhD was a properly properly participative piece of work. So you had co-researchers who were fellow disabled people that you had taken the journey with from first looking at having a pooled budget for social care, looking at whether or not empowerment was was really happening, and then all realizing that that was a false consciousness and and taking taking your steps towards the next stage in your career, which is a a slightly mind-boggling one. Um, we've got a question from, from Joe ab about that because it can be difficult to pigeonhole you. And in fact, one wouldn't oughtn't to pigeonhole people anyway, but you're a particularly interesting case for that, Joe. Okay, thanks. So yeah, as, as Dan kind of said earlier, and as, you, as you've um, clarified, you do seem to wear a lot of different hats. So um, as a disabled person, an academic researcher, service user, practitioner, social entrepreneur, and activist. Um, so with Ginger Giraffe, what, how do you see what you're trying to achieve 
And what are the biggest challenges for you personally in trying to achieve those goals? So, okay, so one of the things to to kind of just clarify is I didn't start the PhD as a participatory researcher. I started the PhD as a user-led researcher. And I think it's really important to make those distinctions. It, it sort of sounds like, you know, such, you know, getting all tangled up about, you know, semantics, but actually this isn't semantics. What's important to remember is that the disability movement and disability organizations in general have this thing called, we are user-led. And what they mean by that is that they state that 75% of their board and, and then staff need to be made up of disabled people. That is the organization that I had and worked in for, for, for many years, about 10 years. And the interesting thing for me, though, was that that model states that you as a disabled person are an expert and can set up the research parameters yourself and then can research things about disability, right? But actually, conceptually, that's really problematic because that goes against the idea of working in participation with other disabled people. So there's this really interesting rub where they continue to use this user-led title as a weapon to beat other organizations over the head with. But actually what, what, what we found is that being more and more user-led doesn't make you inclusive, but actually makes you quite exclusive. And I couldn't fathom for the life of me why we would fight for inclusivity, but then cocoon ourselves in our own organizations where we only worked with other disabled people. I just, it, there was just something really bizarre about that for me. I have to say, even though it felt bizarre, I kind of went with it because I really believed the rhetoric. And it wasn't until the research started showing results in that personalization wasn't working and this having lots of disabled people run things doesn't actually work particularly well that I made the participatory turn. And it was in making the participatory turn and seeing myself as a co-researcher with other disabled people and actually more importantly, with non-disabled social work and social care allies as equals that we were able to then make the inroads that we were able to make. There is a slight rub in that I would challenge disability organizations that call themselves user-led to question whether they can actually be truly co-productive if they are only, you cannot be co-productive and user-led. There is a contradiction in terms there. Um, is that about the leadership thing? Is it about the sort of power and equality dynamic yeah, that's wrong? Absolutely. You can you cannot say I am working in equality and co-production with X, but actually I'm going to do it from the standpoint of being user-led. I just, how does that just doesn't make? I mean, I make it make sense because it doesn't make sense to me. Um, there's going to be a lot of me saying make it make sense throughout this podcast, not just this one, but every other podcast, because I'm confused about a lot of things. But in answer to Joe's question about Ginger Giraffe, Ginger Giraffe came about because the second half of that PhD was so much fun that we didn't want to stop. And so the co-researchers who were involved all went, well, this can't, we can't stop now. I mean, you know, what are we going to do? Because what do you mean it's going to end? And I was like, I know it's going to end. And they were like, well, we can't go back to how it was. And so we all just, we all just kind of schlepped off and left the user-led organisation. <laughs> we we didn't we didn't have anywhere to go. We just decided we couldn't be there anymore. So that's how Ginger Giraffe 
got set up is that ginger giraffe brings together the people who took part in that seminal research and continue um to kind of be very central in my mind to making things happen sorry joe that was a really long i had i had to say that though because i think the journey is important as mike would say yeah. it's, it was the, it's the journey that's important not necessarily the destination and also i think from your work the methodology is important and it's interesting that you were talking about confusion and, and it strikes me that a lot of the things that, that you're doing are about being okay with uncertainty, confusion. You, you have this thing called dissensus, which you're, I know you're very interested in, which maybe we can unpack at some stage, but spaces where there aren't any immediately correct answers and actually debating and pushing and, and testing things is the only way to, to, to become enlightened. Yeah, it's a it's it it's a it's a personal, cognitive and social struggle, and I think through struggle, you 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 find a way. There are no easy answers. I I wish being part of a user led organization was the answer. It's not the answer. There is actually no one answer. There are many answers and many narratives. And actually, part of the methodological challenge is, can you become part of a group where you collectively uh, strive together for something? And then when that's achieved, are you able to also continue to then use that methodology to help other groups do the same thing? So, so for me, I think when we talk about disruption, dissensus, what I kind of am interested in, in engaging with in order to kind of actually answer Joe's question <laughs> is to create, uh, create spaces where that disruption can happen, that disruption in thinking, that disruption in conceptual, conceptual understanding and in practice. A lot of people, I think, orbit their change around practice. And I don't think that that's where change is. I think cha change has to come from very deep places conceptually. And once you have conceptually moved, then you can set up new practices around those new concepts. And I think actually that's a lesson for personalization they wanted to change the, the practice and move money around, but they didn't change the theoretical underpinnings. And if you keep the theoretical underpinnings where they were, then nothing really changes. It's like changing chairs on the Titanic. It's just moving things around and actually moving minority and majority position whilst keeping the foundations the same doesn't doesn't do anything so yeah so I, I always say you know if, if it's not rooted it won't take root people hello that's very interesting because you your your work is it strikes me has all been conceptually driven uh, and in a way one of the things you've been describing is your rejection of the the othering of people and the theming of people and that's led you to always want to know what a we would look like if you, if you, if you like and what, yeah. one of the things for you that that's meant is, uh, as a person who I think it could be definitely, an accusation could definitely be charged at your doorstep that you're slightly addicted to education because you, I've, I've literally lost count of the number of degrees, masters and PhDs that you had. But you then, I think, it strikes me that what you did was you thought, well, so much of my experience and my life and my work and my activism has been based around critiquing social care. Actually, what I need to do is to be a social worker too, to be able to yeah. do that as a we from the inside and not just Absolutely. from the outside. Yeah. Without and a doubt. I mean, the thing is, is that the per personalization is about the I. I'm not really interested in the I. I'm interested in the we. And I'm not interested anymore in hurling rockets from the other side. And, and, and kind of lording it over people about how crap they are. I, I 
need to have a deep understanding. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with critiquing, but I think it's important to state here that I'm about critiquing systems, not people, right? I don't have a beef really with the, so, with the individual social workers who are trying their best within a bad system. Um, my beef is with the system and my beef is with can, can we, because I can now say we, because I'm almost a social worker in 19 days and counting. I, so I hope I can say we. Can we use the methodologies in order to reimagine social work? Can we do that? And I set my stall up as an anti-social worker, but that is part of it, which is to say that I do think a massive disruption is, is needed within social work and everyone feels it and everyone's desperate for it. And they keep talking up transformation like they know what it means. They haven't got a clue what transformation means. They wouldn't know what transformation looked like if it literally hit them in the face. And it's partly because I'm afraid social workers are practitioners. They are not theorists. And they seem to proudly go around saying this like it's a badge of honor. So they use this kind of idea of I'm a practitioner as a badge of honor. But actually all that really says to me is that you're not thinking. Somebody says to me, I'm a practitioner. I'm like, you're not really thinking then because all you're doing is you're orbiting around your practice and then reflecting on your bad practice. Well, and that's not really reflection either. This is an area that we really wanted to explore actually. And I know that both Natalia and Joe are, are, are as student social workers who will soon be social workers in practice wanted to ask you about. And Natalia has a question on that. Uh, yes, exactly. Thanks, Dan. Um, it, it is very interesting what you just said, Mariam, about you know the theory, um, method methodology, and then well, a student social worker, and you know hoping to be a social worker or maybe an anti-social worker, really, as yourself. Why do you think that a lot of newly qualified social workers struggle to feel that they are actually learn and ethics uh, and ethical considerations they've learned uh, during the degrees um you know in the actual practice why do you think they are they feel they don't they're not using it or struggling to use it i'm just going to repeat the question as i understood it so you're asking why are newly qualified social workers struggling to um implement the the kind of theoretical and ethical stuff uh, within practice. Do I have that right? I think it's more about why do, uh, why newly qualified social workers struggle to feel that they're actually using it. Okay, so I can kind of speak with experience now. Hardy ha ha ha. Uh, this is going to be lovely for the profession of social work, having an incendiary person like me in it. Um, so there is a simple answer and there is a complex answer. I'm going to go with, I'm going to try and do the simple answer. The simple answer is that social work has very lofty ideas of being an anti-oppressive practice person, right? And then nested within that, you have a bunch of concepts which are all about trying to empower service users, work alongside service users, make sure that service users get what they need, yada, yada, yada. We don't need to rehearse all of that. Hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, you will be entrenched in all of that. So here is the kind of binary rub. Number one, that is not what the statutory system is there for. The statutory system is there to ration services and to make sure that depleting numbers of people get access to those services. It, they practice an agency-based approach 
not a community-based approach, right? Because if social workers actually did what the community wanted, it wouldn't look anything like what it looks like. So the reason why newly qualified social workers struggle is because we kind of still tell them in university that they can do all of the things that we know they can't really do because we have an ambition that maybe if we stuff enough councils with people with these ideas that it will infect the system. But actually what happens is that the system infects us, right? Because the, the, the system is able through its power and control and by the fact that it gives you a wage, dictate how you behave and, and run. And I defy anybody to come and tell me that they're doing radical social work in a council. I would love to meet that person. Come and say hello if we'll you exist. You we'll have you please, on. Please, 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 especially all you transformation bods, come, come tell me about your transformation, please. But yeah, so that that is the rub. You cannot have community-based social work thinking and then stuff it in a statutory organization. We have to get really honest, actually. And I want Social Work England to hear me now, right? Stop lying to social work students. And I mean it. We need to decide as a profession whether we want to be community based social workers and allied with service users, or if we want to be agency-based social workers and work in councils. I see those two types of social workers as fundamentally two different types of social workers. And I think universities actually need to start getting very specific about, do we want to teach a community-based social work course, or do we want to teach a statutory agency-based social work? Because I can tell you now, with the best will in the world, my, univer my university master's social work experience was that they tried their best to do a little bit of both, but actually it was a curate's egg from my, from my point of view, because it neither equips you for the radical, dissensual disruption that I'm interested in, nor does it prepare you for the numptiness of filling in forms on mosaic, right? It's one or the other, guys. Choose. So are you advocating for different types of taught training? Yes. Um, if we have to have social work at all, can we get specific? <laughs> because presumably there's a difference between the need for, for example, some pretty intensive child protection work which where the parameters may have to be much more fixed and of course legislation with the child being at the center is unlikely to change I think or, or it's difficult to envisage perhaps how it could be more community oriented and the kind of social work that you have perhaps yourself encountered as well, an adult. The, the only reason it's difficult to imagine Dan is because they don't think that it takes a community to raise a child that's why because child protection is exactly that. And when you put the child at the center, it's the same as putting the disabled person in the center. That doesn't work particularly well either because we have increasing numbers of children coming into care. So how is that helpful, actually? Really, it's not- The kind of reimagination or revolutionary reimagination that you're, you're edging towards then in your discourse could be very frightening and threatening to the system and to professional silos and professional qualifications. Yeah, it is frightening, but it should be frightening. <laughs> if it's not keeping you up at night, people, you're not doing your jobs right. I'm telling I you think that. this is something that Joe, I know Joe is very interested in from, from a sort of personal perspective, isn't it, Joe? Yes. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's really refreshing 
not refreshing, I don't know whether it's refreshing or not, but it's certainly, um, it's certainly kind of reassuring on a personal level to, to hear that because I'd speak to my my um, some of my my fellow students about the fact that the what we're being taught doesn't. I mean, I haven't I haven't even unfortunately started my um, my placement even yet. And even without having having gone on placement, there does seem to be a misalignment between some of what we're being taught and then, as you said, the kind of um how that's implemented in practice and, and in fact whether or not it's implemented at all uh, and it was really interesting to hear you saying that the, the potential philosophy is stuffing kind of almost you know idealistic kind of um social workers into local authorities in the hope the vain hope that they'll i mean i can't even imagine that that can be the the, the goal because obviously the system needs to be self-perpetuating but i mean it, for, for its own benefit mm. but my, my question is is it possible to be radical or even revolutionary from within and I think I know the answer from within the current social work system and, and I guess I'm talking about being in a local authority really or a council or not the, the because short, I think it's something that lots of lots of the students think think about and, and yeah, the short answer, I think, having been in a statutory organisation for some I don't know how many days, can we talk about what a waste of space placements are, please, as well? So, in short, no, because the system is its own machine and social work is not guided by theory, it is guided by law and policy, right? I would like to move social work to being based on evidence-based research. And I'm happy for that to be any kind of research it, it, it needs to be. And I know what will happen is they'll distort it and it'll become all this kind of quasi-quantitative stuff that unnamed academics who I might invite on the show to shout at at some point want to kind of instigate. But the thing is, is that if a profession is purely guided by the law and policy, it changes with the wind because politicians and policy and law changes. We have to remain firm in who we are and what we are, right? And we can't do that when our job is essentially dictated to us by what the Care Act says, what the Children Act says, as opposed to what my ethics say, yeah? My ethics says the Care Act is a load of what's it, as is the Children Act, actually. Um, so what, what system am, am I working within? So, so it, it, in answer to your question, Joe, I personally don't think it's possible to create that kind of dissensus from within local authorities because they local authority statutory services run they are fueled on what the law says they can and can't do you you have a kind of depleting amount of professional judgment that you're able to exercise and discretion it's tiny right in comparison to the you know act blah 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 subsection blah 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 da 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 21 27 47 17 that all that tells you what you're supposed to do how are you supposed to be participatory and radical and, and and do all of those things within that now i think we, we we honestly we need to get very real and i will just make this point about um placements social work england dictates at the moment that in order to be a social worker one must go and sit in a statutory organization for 100 days let me tell you i have gained nothing from sitting 
in a statutory organisation for 100 days, apart from it confirming all of my worst fears about how I can't do radical social work or anti-social work within a, within a statutory setting. You should not have to prove to the regulator that you can fill in numpty forms and ask standardised questions and be a functionary in order to qualify as a social worker. Social work is so broad. And if you look at other countries, it spans many, many, many kind of different professions. It's a lot more multi-layered. It can go into psychology. It, it kind of pushes the boundaries where OTs are. It, 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 it does a lot in a lot of other countries. But, but here it's become very minimal and stripped back, right? And what I would like to see Social Work England do if they're actually committed to transformation for now, for now, um, it, it is, is to say, right, you can, you can, if you want to be a community-based social worker, still study social work, go off and do, go off to Peru and work with a bunch of indigenous people. That is social work, right? Go and spend, go and spend a hundred days in the favelas. Go and do that. Go and spend a hundred days in other communities. You know, by the way, there is a whole world outside of UK statutory social work. Wow. Oh my God. You know, so you can do that. You can be that kind of social worker and you can build a career around being that kind of social worker. But it requires us to A, reimagine the way that we teach social work, to get really specific with people about, do you want to be a community-based social worker or do you want to be a statutory-based social worker? Because I've had both in, in, in my organization on placements. And I can tell you the kind of mind that it takes to be a statutory social worker is someone who is going to toe the line and do as they are told. And there are people out there who are more than happy to go and earn 40 grand a year towing the line. They're not interested in politics. They're not interested in disruption. They're not interested in pushing the envelope. They're interested in getting a job, getting a key worker mortgage, frankly. And we have been told that by social work students, right? That's what they're interested in. Fine. Fine. Go and be a neoliberal shill. I don't care. But don't try and turn me into a neoliberal shill because I'm not one. I want to do radical social work, which required a completely different degree. And I tell you for one thing, my degree at SOAS, when I did development studies, that was closer to what I think a social work degree should have been, because that's actually what set me up. Not, not what I got from the university that I got my social work master's from. I'm not actually sure what it set me up for. It set me up for confusion. Well, this leads us, I think, neatly into our, our final sort of part of this podcast, which is after all of this critique, sort of trying to think constructively and, and positively about what could change and what, what we can potentially control and influence uh, within the sort of shadow of this huge system. Um, and what that is what you just talked about, which is um, how things could be different. And Natalia has a question on that. Well, the question I have, Mariam, is, so if you could, or you, if you had an opportunity or simply a magic wand, and you could redesign the whole way social work um, is taught at universities, what changes would you, would you implement? What would you change? I, okay, if we, first, I think we have to go back to go forwards. Do we still believe that social work as a profession is needed? This is, the, the, this is kind of one of the big conceptual problems that I have in my head because I fundamentally don't agree with anti-oppressive practice, but perhaps we can discuss that another day because that is a whole five-hour rant about something else. I don't believe it's possible 
to empower to impart empower on on people in the same way as I don't believe it's possible to introduce democracy into Afghanistan down the barrel of a gun, right? Those two ways of thinking are the same way of thinking to me. You cannot empower people. People can only empower themselves. What you can do is act as some kind of facilitator, agitator, community organizer, bringing people together to talk and share and do all of that. But you can't actually physically give people power because that involves a transaction. And I don't think power is, it is transactional. So if I was going to wave a, a, a magic wand, I would want to go back to go forwards, which is to actually firstly ask the question, do we still feel that there is a relevance to the to the profession of social work. And if we collectively, I can't be the one to make that decision. If we collectively as a group decide that actually, yes, there is still a role within society for social work, then we need to decide what that actually is. And together, we then need to design a course that we think will address those issues. So I would come at it methodologically. I don't have in my mind an idea for what a course would look like. What I have is a deep commitment to working with others to work this out. And it's a going to be a long process. <laughs> it's a long process. It's not going to be one of those things where you lock yourself in a cupboard and you go, I've come up with a curriculum, pat myself on the shoulder, I've done my social work academic job, yawn. No, it's, it is deeply rooted in bringing people together who want to envisage and envision and reimagine and bring about a different kind of social work course. And so I'm not going to sit here and say, I have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I've got a lot of questions, but I don't have a, a, the answers. What I do have, however, is a radical co-productive methodology that I think we could use to help us to reimagine what that course might look like if we actually came to the decision that we did want to, to design, for example, an anti-social work course. That, that should be quite exciting. And in a way, we can use, of course, this podcast series because we are addressing the, the themes and, and subjects from within the course, such as, for example, anti-oppressive practice and um, user participation, all of these things. We can actually, with, with the students and together with, with the experts that we're going to be inviting on, begin to test out some of these ideas and reimagine how it could be done differently. And I think that's one of the reasons that you have accepted Yohai's invitation to take on uh, some podcasts to to do that. Yeah, that is that that is that that is both the kind of um, the challenge and the opportunity in a way, uh, because inviting other guests on board, finding where they're coming from, what perspective they have about social work is actually going to be really helpful in kind of helping to have me have a better understanding of how other people sort of feel and think about social work. And there is this kind of, I think, quite unhelpful divide at the moment where I think the academics all sit in one corner and the practitioners kind of sit in another corner in social work. Oh, well, actually, Joe, Joe has a sort of interesting question about... about sort of elements of that okay no. yes so yeah it, it's to do with critical reflection and the fact that we're kind of encouraged to to apply critical reflection as individual social workers the question is 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 critical reflection used throughout kind of at a high level throughout the profession in your experience or in your opinion and I suppose it's to do with it's to do with kind of cohesion and whether or not you know there is a, a within social work profession as a whole a, an element of critical reflection and, and reevaluation. I suppose. Okay, so I think individual social workers believe that they are doing critical reflection, and I say that with the I say that I'm a very open-hearted 
hearted person. And I know that I'm going to come across sometimes as a highly uppity, angry, disabled person, a label that I both love and hate. I think people are trying to reflect. My issue, though, is that there is a big step between reflection and critical reflection. And I don't actually think that we have made the conceptual turn. Um, and the reason I say that is because even on this placement, we're asked, for example, to critically reflect. But when you actually kind of dig beneath the surface and you sort of try and work out what they mean by that, what they mean is that they want you to look at your practice and they want you to reflect on that practice and then they want you to then think about how you might have done things differently if you had your chance again, right? That to me, let's, let's not call it reflection. Let's call that, let's call that writing something on what is, not writing something on what could be. The what could be turn is the critical turn, right? The, the, the critical turn is to not be reflecting on the practice because the practice is the problem. <laughs> the, the, the critical bit is to actually throw all the balls up in the air and, and, and to be able to reflect yourself out of that system. And, and I think this is the problem that I have with the way that we currently do the write-ups and, and, and what's kind of badged as critical reflection. I don't understand the point of, and, and I've kind of said this also in my PhD, there is no point in continuously problematizing something. It serves no purpose. Oh, there's a problem there. Oh, there's, there's systemic racism over there. There's systemic disabledism over there. There's systemic sexism over there. We, we just keep on saying that in social work, like it's a rev. Oh, look what we found, more racism. Oh, oh look, 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 more disabledism. Repeating the problem over and over again, as though disabled people don't know their systemic disabledism. Shock, horror. Social work identified systemic disabledism. Nobel Prize. Come on, you know, the thing is, I don't actually, to be honest with you, I think, Joe, my problem is I don't see the point in reflection. And I don't see the point in critical reflection either because it's concentrating on what is, not what could be. And you can't, you can't do what could be because we don't actually train people on what could be. We train people on what is. A what could be methodology is a completely different set of skills, actually, and requires inc an incredible different way of, of thinking. It, come, it, it requires coming at your reflection and saying, the way that I'm currently doing social work is a busted flush. If I was gonna, if I was gonna do this, if I was gonna do this work with this family, I probably wouldn't actually be doing the work with this family. <laughs> and that's what I mean about anti-social work, is that a lot of it is if I'm just gonna reflect on what is, then all that really happens is I say to myself, well, you know, instead of maybe taking them through this intervention, I take them through this crappy intervention instead. Whereas what critical reflection is, is that why am I there? What am I doing there? How am I actually helping? Should I even go? Should I be there? Should, you know, should I actually be facilitating some, some other thing, you know? But constantly putting yours, this is, this is the narcissistic thing about social work. It, it, it kind of says it's about other people. It's not. Reflection is about yourself. And it's this navel gazing into yourself and surfacing all of your, you know, this and that and your triggers. And, and I'm just like, God, oh, I'm so over it. It's boring, man. It's boring. Don't want to talk about reflection anymore.
but we can um, we can certainly pick that up in later episodes because I know you've got some very strong feelings about supervision and how which of course supervision is the oh, concept God. within what which lots of social workers will critically reflect <laughs> and how that could be reimagined but we haven't got time unfortunately for that this time I want to wrap up by saying thank you so much to Joe and Natalia our student co-hosts who've been brilliant today and Mariam it's an inspiration to work with you and I can't wait for the rest of the podcast series thank you very much for listening does the social work um, please tune into our next episode this podcast is produced by Yohai Hacker and edited by Vimal Dalal to find out more about Brunel University social work program please check our web pages at brunel.ac.uk forward slash social dash work or follow us on Facebook or Twitter to learn more about Ginger Giraffe, visit our website, www.gingergiraffe.coop. Thanks very much and good evening.